the Daily Rios for November 16th, 2012. Feedback Friday. But who you are is definitely in a state of change and transformation due to the influence of Saturn. But if you do have something that you want to start afresh on, or there's something that you've always been very enthusiastic about that's probably lost a little bit of impetus, this is your chance to really put a spurt into things. It is the end of the week, and just when I thought my week, my month, my year was going to slow down after the university let out for winter break, uh, as I mentioned earlier this week, I just happened to land a choreography gig for a local production of The Producers. Great show. Also picked up another class to teach next semester at the university, which is awesome. And there are some cool things coming up with the production company that I work for. So busy, busy, busy. It's going to be an interesting next few months and a challenge to get out the Daily Rios every day. But I shall succeed. Also, if all of my schedules work out, there's a chance... And now I'm going to say there's more than a 50% chance, more than a 50% chance, maybe a 52% chance <laughs> that I could possibly hit the London Super Comic Convention in late February. Possibly. Maybe. We'll see. All right, last week's Friday follow-up episode received some choice feedback, so we're actually going to start there for this episode. And in that episode, I did a top five words that are overly or wrongly used segment. I also talked a little bit about comics that are missing in action. And I mentioned Kamiko and CO2's no new works. <clears throat> Excuse me. And also a comics interview. That top five got people talking, which is always welcomed. And I appreciate that. So let's jump in. This is from Anne Langston. She comments, Overrated. I was a little surprised that you just confined this to Watchmen. I've noticed that overrated is coming to mean I don't like this, at least in some people's minds. It's easiest to notice with series like Watchmen and Sandman, but I've heard it with other books too. I think it's not only misused, it's a form of arrogance, uh, as if to say, this is not my cup of tea, therefore everyone else must be wrong about it. And I, I, I agree with that. And that's definitely an implication that I was trying to put out there when I was initially talking about it. And, yeah, it goes all over the place. Music, movies, comics, books, TV, etc. And overrated, meaning I don't like this, that is completely spot on. I think I chose Watchmen because I wanted something that uh, has stood the test of time over and over again, something very large, or to put it in another light, to give it another example, I wanted to use something that not only did I, did I know that history sort of regarded as a major important work, but that other comic creators also held in high regard. Uh, I, I have a fondness of, of using a saying that goes something like, when one king says there's a fire, there can be some doubt, but when 50 kings say there's a fire, there can be no doubt. Something like that. It's almost like how for, for many people, uh, Citizen Kane, the movie, is regarded as a classic in terms of movie making and uh, other bits of movie, um, movie lore. I've never seen it, but even if I did see it and, and didn't like it, I, I've read enough about it 
to absorb its place in movie making history, regardless of what I think of it. And I think it's sometimes foolish to deny its place in history or to ignore that when works are that influential. Watchmen, Citizen Kane, Snow White for Disney, right? My my girlfriend and I watched uh, Snow White recently. We're, go- we're going to watch all the Disney animated movies in order. And on the special features section, they talk about the history of Snow White. Not only the creation of it, but the chance that Disney took on this animate, full-length animated movie and how Disney kept going back to that movie over and over again to keep their brand out there during the 40s and the 50s. So suddenly I learned this whole new thing about Snow White. Not only that it was just Disney's first attempt at a major full-length animated movie, but that it has a real resonance with the company and what it means to the company. So suddenly now it has even yet another layer to it that I never knew about. What else out there uh, do I think has an importance that maybe I'm not so well-versed at? But, uh, you know, think of a novel. Maybe you listeners out there, think of a novel or a TV show. I don't know, MASH, All in the Family, Johnny Carson. Could we really say that those things are overrated? I, I can't. History just won't agree with that. And it's and then it's not just history's job to prove itself right. I feel it's the detractors' job to try and prove why they think they're right. I think they're gonna have a harder time with that. I think they're gonna have a minority voice on a on a school of thought that um has a lot of support to it, you know? Uh and I think if they try to approach it from that angle, they're going to find that that is not so supported. So, absolutely, that word can be thrown around and has been thrown around for a lot of different projects over the years. And sometimes it really means something else, like Anne is saying. Um, but uh, uh, just one of those words that when I hear my little bell goes off. Uh, she also continues here, she's, she talks about all ages, and she says, I'm not really sure what that means, actually, and I think that's the problem with the phrase. Nobody seems to have defined it. When I see it, I think comics that my seven-year-old granddaughter can read, but someone else might see it as comics that the parent of a teenager will, f- will feel comfortable seeing his or her child reading. I think you might be right about the nostalgia factor as well. I wouldn't call Mouse All Ages reading either, and that was also mid-80s. Absolutely, and the, the scale will definitely slide based on parents' tastes, uh, what they want their children in their lives to be exposed to, what they feel they are ready to, for, or, or just wanting to hold on to their child's innocence longer and not have them, quote-unquote, grow up too quickly, whatever the reason. And it is, it is undefinable. Um... But a blanket, 80s comics were all ages, that doesn't really speak to the situation either. And uh, to continue this thought, Chris Beckett of uh, ReadingWatchmen.com and Warrior27.com brought up another 80s comic that is a great example of uh, an 80s comic that is not all ages, but I read when I was 13. He says, I totally agree with your comment that children are not given enough credit My oldest son was reading Stephen King by the age 13, and when I was around that age, I was reading Dark Knight Returns, V for Vendetta. I remember this specifically because the local comic shop employee who rang me up had to ask my dad if it was okay for me to purchase, but assured him 
that what was in the comic was no worse than what was on Miami Vice. And learning that Karen Page was a drug-addicted prostitute-slash-porn actress in Daredevil Born Again. Ah, those halcyon days of my youth. Yes, Chris, Daredevil Born Again. Awesome. Violence, sex, drug-popping. Uh, 1986, I was 13 reading those issues, probably a few months before my 14th birthday. And I actually went online and checked the covers, and the newsstand editions have the Comics Code Authority seal on them. The direct market covers don't, which I thought was interesting. But the one that goes out to the mass public, they all have the Comics Code Authority on. Those are clearly not all ages. However, I think they can be enjoyed by uh, uh, all ages, you know, certainly with a certain understanding of what's going on inside the book, as I was. You know, I read those books as they were coming out. And... I knew what was right, I knew what was wrong, I knew what was going on, I knew that the hero had to make a journey, and and I wasn't persuade, persuaded by what was in the book, I didn't go out and try some crack, you know, I, I wasn't in the porn business for too long, um, no, I'm just kidding. So, that's a great example, I, I appreciate that, uh, uh, bringing that up. He also comments on Rushed, and says... This goes to the old adage that art is never finished, only abandoned. These artists have to find a balance between doing the best they can and doing it in a timely fashion. It's lamentable, but how how else can they survive? And on the flip side, if left to their own timetable, how much less art creativity might we get from these artists? I responded on the site to Chris when he wrote that, and... Because that's a phrase used in theater. Art is never finished, only abandoned. Uh, It goes, you know, you never complete a show by opening night, you abandon it. And that is something very real, you know, an artist continuing to work on something until ultimately they just have to let it go. And then what Chris said about how much less art creativity, yes, totally. Also, and how will they survive financially, right? Some artists have converted to digital because it helps with their speed, people like Mike Norton, Freddie Williams, and it probably was the speed, the ease of the process uh, that lured them to help keep them monthly or at least on time as much as they can, and also to keep them viable in the minds of editors and publishers and saying, hey, here's an artist that can keep a schedule. I mean, Brian Boland has been doing digital for years, a decade more even. And this, I thought what was interesting when Chris brought this up, it made me think about how DC is often criticized that after the reboot, they were constantly changing writers and changing artists left and right. Uh, Even though that was something that they initially said they would do to hold the line at making sure that everything came out on time. So, you know, they, they were criticized and almost in a very generalized way. And I hate generalizations. And they would say that, oh, you know, DC couldn't keep their artists on a book, couldn't keep their creators on the book. And I think that does a disservice to those people who actually can absolutely do a monthly issue and never be late. Freddie Williams on Captain Adam, 13 issues straight, 1 through through 12, uh, an issue zero, with no missed or delayed issue. And he did it. But obviously, the juicier tidbit is to pick on the titles that didn't have a constant creative team, right? You know, it's, it, it's funny. Sometimes I get people who dislike the way that I talk about comics because they feel that the tone that I use 
to them feels like I'm coming at it from a place of, you know, I know more than you do, which let's face it, sometimes I do. <laughs> or that I'm talking from like a pedestal or something like that. And I just want to say, like in this case with the Captain Adam Freddie Williams thing, you know, I just like to use facts to back up my arguments and examples, actual examples. To go back to this, I think it's a disservice to those artists who are putting your books out on time, month after month, and to blanket them in with these generalizations, I think it ignores their contributions and it ignores their work and it ignores their work ethic. Every artist has their speed. Every artist has their limit. Every artist has uh, what they can do in a day, what they can do in a month, what they, how, how long it takes for them to do an, an issue. Sometimes it's just business. Sometimes it's uh, an artist that gets put on a book and they're not given enough lead time. It happened with uh, Steve McNiven with Civil War. It's happening now with John Cassidy on Uncanny Avengers, right? And they're trying to make it <laughs> they're trying to twist it into this other thing. You know, Tom Brevoort mentioned, um, he says, I know, I know it sucks when the books are late, but I always tend to come down in the same place. I'm dealing with the short game of readers salivating for the next issue and retailers hoping that money is in their coffers, while I also focus on the long game and ensuring we get a book that can sell forever. Now, some could say that DC decided to focus on the short game. And they decided that they wanted their books to come out on time so that readers could find the book for whatever week it was supposed to come out. And retailers had that constant flow uh, of product into their store. And I tell you what, a lot of retailers were really happy about that. They were really happy about it. And you know what? There is some of a, a, a long-term game plan to that as well because if you put out 12 books a year, you can start putting out some trades if suddenly your book is late and it's going to take, you know, almost two years, a year and a half to get uh, 12 issues out. You don't have as many trades out. So this whole, you know, what Tom's talking about, uh, the long game and ensuring that you can have a book that can sell forever. Why? Because it's just one artist in a book. I mean, I, maybe collectors really feel that way, but... I don't know if the general pop populace does. I don't know. I don't know if they care about that. I haven't seen enough evidence to support that. Let me I'll put it that way. But to go back to this whole this whole idea of, of, you know, rushed, clearly John Cassidy was not given enough lead time, which puts in question this whole Marvel Now development. You know, it's not, obviously not a long-term plan if they're already having delays uh, out of the gate. And uh, with some delays, I'll say, not not across the board. Um, so you want to say, you know, again, to go back to this whole rushed thing, you have to think about the larger, the behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on. Uh, and it's uh, some of it is just making it real hard for artists to be on time. Um, Chris had some other points. Uh, Chris says, he talks about corporate comics. As much as I will rail against this, I do understand it. Paul Pope's approach, which I believe he shared on the Comic Geek Speak interview he did years ago, is perfect. Accept that Batman or Spider-Man or whichever character is a corporately owned character. Work to the best of your ability within the parameters laid out since you are being subcontracted to work on this character and then work on your personal projects in between work for hire gigs. And as you said, it isn't like this is new Jim Shooter was the one who mandated Jean Grey's death in Dark Phoenix Saga, 
Claremont and Byrne argued against that, but later Byrne admitted that it was the right thing to do. And then he lists his MIA comic, Missing in Action comic, as big numbers. All right, continuing with the top five discussion, Murray, good to hear from Murray, uh, wrote in, but he's actually calling me out on something in relation to all of this, and he says, for someone who's going to great lengths to define words like rushed in all ages, I'm curious why you're willing to use reboot and relaunch interchangeably. I think it might have been when you were on CGS recently, when you seemed to scoff at the idea that the two words had two different meanings. It's certainly true that when DC or Marvel is doing a relaunch or a reboot, the hope is that it's going to be a fresh start and bring new eyes to a book or company. To me, a relaunch is a fresh start, whether it's coming from a new creative team or a new direction for a character or concept, or or simply a new number one. And while a reboot may have all of those characteristics, where it differs is that a reboot wipes the slate clean of everything that came before. There's no opportunity to go back. There's no more history and no more potential storylines to be explored. To use your example of Daredevil, sure. Wade's take on the character is fresh and new and has little in common common with what Bendis and all those that follow him did with the character. And while Wade is choosing to ignore recent history with the character, there's absolutely nothing stopping him from revisiting the events that led to Shadowland. Anytime he wants to dip his toe into the doom and gloom of pre-Wade Daredevil, he's totally free to do so. Same thing with Marvel Now. Those stories might be a good jumping on point, and they might be aiming to tell stories that are fresh and new, but there's nothing to stop writers from referring to Civil War or House of M or AVX. There's a straight storyline, and it can be traced from the beginning of the Marvel U all the way to Marvel Now. You can't say that for any book that has been rebooted. DC 52, there's no history there. Writers can't go back and decide to reference that time that Flash's wife died because it never happened. He doesn't have a wife, and she hasn't been killed. They can't go and write a story about the annual JLA-JSA team-ups because neither of those teams exist in the new DC. Or the Legion. They've had all kinds of reboots, and each one has broken from the past and started history all over again. Although I'll grant you that the Legion has had its own share of relaunches within reboots. Two things to comment on here, Murray. Uh, And thanks for bringing that up uh, so that I can clarify a bit more uh, on this topic. First, uh, when he talks about uh, reboot and relaunch, they are absolutely two different words with uh, meanings that relate to them. But Marvel's reaction to the New 52 adds the layer here that keeps me from not having to worry about the difference. (sighs) Yeah, for lack of a better way to put it. Part of me wonders if they weren't all ready to do an actual reboot post-AVX, you know, with all the Phoenix cosmic stuff that was going on. Part of me wonders if that wasn't their plan, maybe a secondary plan, had DC's reboot failed. If it failed financially, if it failed with the retailers, if it failed bringing in readers, I wonder if Marvel had a game plan to say, okay, now we're going to do it right. But DC's reboot didn't fail. So what they went with was a relaunch. Now, the reason I keep interchanging these two words in in this instance is because for all their claims that this Marvel Now isn't a response to DC, it absolutely is. 
This isn't Dark Rain. This isn't Heroic Age. Actually, Matt from CGS sent me a tweet earlier, and he said uh, he'd argue that Marvel Now is not what DCU did. Uh, the only relaunch here was with new number ones like fo- uh, like they usually do following all events. But it's it's more than that. Beyond the branding and the creator shifts, and not just bringing in new creators, actually shifting them around, you know, switching all the chairs around. It's also their hype, the radio ads, the, the releasing content through other newspapers, USA Today and elsewhere. And then they even talked about distribution, which was nothing that was never really in play before. And obviously, probably because it wasn't as advanced as it was in previous years. But they are absolutely looking at this as a starting point, not only thematically like Dark Reign and Heroic Age, not just as jumping points, but they want and they need all of this to draw attention as a company, for their company, new readers, older readers returning to the fray. They need this to mimic the success of DC. I'm sorry, they are trying to mimic, capitalize, and do better than the success of the new DC really probably what their goal is. They think the way they're doing it will have more returns. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but we'll see. I think this is uh, the reason why I use those words uh, interchangeably is because while their books might be relaunched, I think it's a reboot of the company and how they're doing things. And it's going to be interesting to see it all play out. Now, obviously, we've only got one issue of certain titles so far, and we got a long way to go. But uh, I, I think that's the reason why I, I use those two words uh, interchangeably at this time. Also, before I get to the second point, um, I wanted to mention something in yesterday's Marvel Now review episode, um, something that I noticed, that about 98% of the books are really separate from each other. They barely mention AVX, or if they do, it's... It's a reference to a situation or a battle or a conflict. Um, and they are very purposefully staying out of each other's books. And, and that's certainly not something what, to, to spin it back in this larger conversation, Dark Rain didn't do that. When, when Dark Rain was laid out, there were elements and, and echoes of what had happened going on throughout every book. And that's not what the lead up to Secret Invasion felt, loud, uh, Secret Invasion felt like either. Even Heroic Age had its interconnections for as, even though that was lacking in a lot of direction. Um, So with Marvel Now, again, I know we're only one issue in on most of those titles. They really are keeping them separate, and as they should. I think they need to take a break and develop these titles and let these creators explore their new assignments, because that's what Marvel has been trumpeting, right? They're trumpeting the long-term, the long-term game plan that writers have giving them a feel of, uh, giving them new characters and new concepts to work with. So while on the surface, this may seem like it's old hat, pardon the pun, you bet the higher-ups are expecting something out of this in a way that has a lot more weight than the books and the Marvel line coming out of, say, like Civil War or Siege or whatever. Uh, Especially because Marvel has been playing the catch-up game with uh, readers and retailers (laughs) for a while now, and uh, they really want this Marvel Now to make a push. His second point that I want to talk about, where he says that uh, you can go back all the way from the beginnings of Marvel U to Marvel Now, but you can't do that with DC, 
I'm not entirely certain that's um, that's a rule. Um, you know, before Infinite Crisis, I don't think anybody thought we were going to see some of those pre-crisis characters again. And sure enough, we did. Not only did we see them again, but the history of the entire DC universe, the idea that there was a pre-crisis DCU, was wrapped up into everything. And we have that again. We have Flashpoint right? We have pre-Flashpoint, we have Flashpoint, we have post-Flashpoint. And not all of the books um, totally were rebooted. Batman wasn't wasn't rebooted. Green Lantern ne- wasn't necessarily rebooted. Um, Legion, uh, Batman Inc. I mean, Morrison in Batman Inc. is using his old JLA continuity. And I know Batman Inc. kind of feels like a sideline book, but, you know, there's still some pre-Flashpoint stuff going on there. So I think, yes, I think they absolutely could go back if they wanted to, any time that they wanted to, and not necessarily as a uh, backwards reboot, but just in bringing in continuity once they figure it out, you know, once they say, oh, you know what, even with all the rebooting that's going on with some of our characters, this story still works. So I'm not sure you can necessarily say that all, well, first of all, you can't say that all the titles have been rebooted because that's just not true. And I'm not entirely sure that uh, we can't go back. I mean, using that Pandora character and mixing her in with Phantom Stranger and all that, and the melding of the three DC universes that created this whole line, I don't know. And certainly with Marvel's universe, it's the same thing. I mean, Spider-Man One More Day created a reboot, uh, uh, a retcon, I should say. Um you know, let's talk about Baby May Parker. I mean, where is she in the Spider-Man universe? I mean, that is a big old missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Um, so Marvel's continuity is not as straightforward as, uh, as they want you to believe. You know, Hypertime never really caught on as a concept in the books themselves. But I really do believe... <laughs> That we are the hypertime. We are living that very idea that we can pick up any comic from any issue, from any publisher, from any era, and make connections and form ideas about how these things can exist together without the publishers having to do it. And I like that. I personally like it. I welcome that challenge. I have a thing called uh, my own personal continuity things that I, uh, stories that I believe do exist, uh, other stories that I think don't exist. Um, and you can make, even with all this stuff that's going on with DC's New 52, you can make connections to pre-Flashpoint stuff in interesting ways. And when you have comics that do things like destroy entire realities to restart their universe, there are no rules, baby. There just are no rules, and I think anything can happen. In the Marvel Universe the Avengers assembled to fight the foes no single superhero can withstand. In the Avengers comic book system, the dedicated members who cover and review these titles are members of an elite squad known as the Earth's Mightiest Podcast. These are their stories. Find more about Earth's Mightiest Podcast at www.earthsmightiestpodcast.com. Earth's Mightiest Podcast is not affiliated with at all with Marvel Comics in any way. Plot synopses may not be accurate. Earth's Mightiest Podcast is not responsible for any injuries, death, iPod malfunctions, or babies conceived while listening to this podcast. Just a few more here on that top five 
episode. Chris S. says, I'm guilty of saying that Watchmen is overrated. I see where you're coming from, but in my humble opinion, I just don't get the hype. Chris, cool. That's fine. I don't necessarily think that that's a question of opinion, though, that you don't get the hype. Um, it's certainly your opinion if you feel it's not a good read, but I think the evidence is there about the hype, as you call it, should you choose to look for it. It's hard to ignore the decades worth of material that has been written about Watchmen and talked about Watchmen, and even without reading it all, to say that you don't get the hype, I think there's probably something different in what you're trying to say to be, to be diplomatic, right? Because if you look at all, if you look at all of that, clearly something is working there. Clearly, there's a reaction to something major. Again, to go back to Citizen Kane, haven't seen it, but I've seen and read enough people uh, talking about it that I can't ignore that something went on there whether I like it or not, you know? So, again, I don't think that's an opinion about getting or not getting the hype because the evidence is there. Um, but if Watchmen isn't something you want to invest in, then that's fine. It's not where you want to put your energy. All good. Uh, Sandy Parker says, exclusive review of Peter J. Rios's top five corporate shills overrated list of comic buzzwords felt rushed. Vulgarity equals not all ages. Good stuff. He's having a fun time with using all those words in a sentence. I thought that was awesome. And then Chris Bailey again says, uh, I have also thought about comics' most unused words when involved in discussion. One word that many podcasts avoid rather than using it when talking about comics is, get ready, torrents. My God, I said it. Let's move on. He could be talking about when it comes to the discussion of downloading comments, uh, comics, uh, people ignore the word torrents. There are different ways to get digital comics without torrenting them. I, mean, I guess that's, I guess that's probably the the general word now. But you don't actually have to go through the whole process of seeding and downloading and all that. You can just rip a file right off the internet, um, and and not even in those terms. You can just pull it as if someone sent you a link to something. So. Uh, but I get what he's saying there, so that's a, there's another word uh, I guess people can add to the list. By the way, go to charltonhero.wordpress.com, the superhero satellite, where Chris uh, talks about comics and TV and the world of pro wrestling. And he even has a post on a universe of characters that he created that he talked about back in last Feedback Friday uh, in that episode two weeks ago. So I'll post a link on, uh, on, on the site. If anybody wants to look at that, uh, he has some posts up about Star Wars and V and some other stuff. So check it out there. All right, on to other episodes that I got feedback from. This is from Throwback Thursday. Um, this is where I used a five-year-old wizard magazine to talk about what was going on in comicdom at that time. Uh, Chris, again, Chris uh, Bailey, he says... Um, I will disagree with you on Wizard. I loved that magazine and was a faithful reader up until its last year and a half of its run when its format changed and my comic book budget was at an all-time low. It kept me involved in comics for the several years I stepped away from them after university. It was my newsarama or bleeding cool before I discovered the online presence of comics and I hold it in high regard. From the covers to the articles to the casting calls and to the price guide, I consumed these bad boys every month. 
It was grossly overpriced in Canada, but I worked in retail, and the months I could not afford it, I read the full book off the newsstand until they bagged it. Loved the Wizard specials as well, with the Wizard Zero Hour special being my favorite. I have one question, though. During the podcast, you talked about Wizard sometimes making stuff up in their issues, and this is not the first time I heard this. What exactly did Wizard do in the process of creating their articles that made their integrity come into question? Uh, so two things there. I And I wrote this on the website. I don't think I ever said I hated Wizard Magazine. Um, in fact, I said that I own quite a number of them from like one all, all the way up until, again, like Chris, uh, that last year and a half that I stopped collecting. A little bit past beyond where they changed to magazine format, right? In terms of size, their, mag- their magazine got larger. I read Wizard constantly. I had a subscription to it. I bought it off the shelf. I got it through DCBS when that when I started using that service. I don't hate the magazine. I I just think that it uh, eventually just really declined, um, especially with with what they decided to uh, focus on. You know, they started to get too heavy into movies and TV and video games and, and moved away. They, I mean, they branded themselves as more of a pop culture thing, right? That was the whole thing that was going on. With Wizard. To a second point about making stuff up, Wizard was very um, exclusive when it came to some of their articles. If you bought a an ad in their magazine, you had an article written up about you. And when I first learned this, I started to look at Wizard and I would flip through it and I would see what, what ads were in a book. And so I would write the ads down. You know, maybe it was about uh, I don't know, some toy, some video game, some new comic coming out, right? Then I would look at the the articles and I would go, oh, there's the article that matches that ad. There's the article that matches that ad and so on. Um, there was talk about the price guide was just fabricated from the get-go because um, there was... Uh, the story is something like they were working with Valiant and Image and trying to create a buzz around those books and try to drive up prices and... You know, as a price guide, there was the official uh, Overstreet price guide, but Wizard was something that came out every month, and um, it was a little bit more accessible because it was more mainstream, and a retailer could just flip that, flip to the back and go, hmm, let me see, how much is Cyberforce number one going for? Oh, and then they would mark their book that way. So, and then, of course, Garib Seamus would, uh, there was talk that he sold some of his uh collection that way and would use those prices. Um, but the whole thing about the ads and the articles really does stand out uh, as something as, as being fabricated. And it was a big criticism of them that if you wanted spotlight in their book, you had to play the game. And, and I guess some people, some people did and some people didn't. Um, and then there were a lot, there's a lot of other stories that uh, um, I've read and I've just forgotten over the years. And uh, I'm sure if you, put in Wizard Magazine and, I don't know, History of Wizard Magazine or something else. Maybe you'll get some uh, feedback there and and discover what what was all going on. Here's uh, from N.K. Kwan about Feedback Friday from two weeks ago. He says, Listening to this one, I realized that I have been reading comics for decades but never read them with a critical eye. I did get the social commentary of the 1980s Green Lantern Green Arrow series, uh, that explored drugs, liberals con- versus conservatives, and the shades of right and wrong. Of course, Civil War was a wonderful commentary about our eroding civil rights, but overall, comics for me was simply entertainment, an escape from the mundane. 
Now I read comics with a critical eye, looking for subtext that may or may not be present. It's like reading a novel for the plot, and then reading it again and realizing how much character development occurred. And I responded to him on the website and said, it's not something you have to do all the time, and there's certainly some creators who dabble more in subtext and themes than others, but as another way of enjoying comics, it's, it's, it's another level. You want to read it once and read it again or try to look for that kind of stuff. Or, And some of that, you know, some of that doesn't have to be that um, that much work or, or that complicated. Some of it is just I like to look at connections to other storylines or did they reference a character out of the blue and, and they don't offer much explanation for that character um, because it has some resonance to a char- another character's history or a team's history or something like that. Like, that's also another way to read um, comics. Um, that's, that's the way I enjoy, making those connections to other stories, to other histories, to other continuity, not only to a continuity of a character and a history, but to publishing continuity, a, a publisher's continuity. So... Uh, so that was a cool statement there. Um, he continues on, looking forward to your top five actors list episode. There's a scene in Ang Lee's Hulk where Jennifer Connelly, as Betty, enters a restaurant to meet Sam Elliott, who is General Ross. They are estranged. Betty is hopeful that they will re-engage. She is smiling as she sits down across from her father, and as it becomes apparent that the general merely asked his daughter to lunch to interrogate her about Bruce Banner, the smile on her face changes to disappointment and then anger. I don't think Connolly had five words in that scene, but it was full of emotion and very powerful to me. So he's offering up an example of what he wants to see in that top five actors episode, and uh, I am working on that, so we'll hear that eventually. And then he brings up a topic near and dear to my heart. He says, you also mentioned Nightwing, and I know you're a big fan, but I never understood the character. He is interesting to me only in the context of his relationship to Batman. He's the reluctant heir apparent, the son who knows he can never live up to his father's success. But without Batman, he's just a guy with wood sticks beating up guys. I've read a few issues of a solo series years ago, but I don't remember much. What am I missing, and can you recommend a trade paperback to set me straight? I also think DC threw a great Bat character away when they banished Cassandra Cain. Nightwing never trusted her, and I always thought he was a bit jealous because Batman was training Cassandra to one day take over the mantle. I think this occurred during the War Games crossover in 2004. That conflict between Cassandra and Nightwing was never explored. I don't really have a stake in Cassandra Kane. I liked her as Batgirl, mostly because I thought her costume was kind of bonkers um, for that time, with her mouth all covered up like that. She was she looked like such a weird Bat character, and I think that's saying a lot, right, when it comes to Bat characters. So I don't know much about her, but Nightwing, absolutely, I know about. I could do a whole episode on this, but I I, I just have some bullet points here. Some things that I think um, resonated for me and might resonate for people out there who maybe don't understand the Nightwing character. And, And not to say that any of this is going to convert you, but just stuff to think about. He was the first superhero sidekick of success. He was the first one to graduate out of that role with success. Uh, Marv Wolfman really went out of his way to exercise Dick Grayson from living under Batman's shadow, right? He really made Dick Grayson his own person, removed him from Batman, removed him from the Batman book, 
and took him away from ever wanting to be Batman. And that's a trait that writers have long since thrown back into the mix when it comes to Dick Grayson. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, I really do believe that Dick Grayson is the center point of the DCU, at least pre-Flashpoint, anyway. Uh, He's the most level-headed. He's the thinker. He learned from the best. He learned from Batman. He learned from Superman. He learned from the JLA. And then he had his fellow Titans, which also meant not only did he have um, his own generation, but then he could learn from those mentors as well. Uh, And that was a generation that didn't have to be iconic, right? They could be human. They could be kids. They could learn from their mentors without having the full weight of what it means to be a Superman or a Batman or a Wonder Woman. Um, Dick Grayson, by all rights, should be the character that you go to that knows everything about the DCU. In many ways, he was Oracle before there was Oracle. And to go back to his initial creation, he is the reader, right? Imagine a young reader of any era, first reading a Batman comic with a young Robin, marveling at the idea of Batman and what that means, but maybe not necessarily wanting all the tragedy that goes with it, And then here comes along this young, colorful, funny, crazy, acrobatic sidekick that gets to hang out with Batman and share all his gadgets and his cars and his money, but doesn't have to be all angsty, right? I think that probably is very awesome and very alluring, and frankly, that's who I would rather be. So I think those of us that grew up with Dick Grayson in those years where he gave up being Robin and then turned into Nightwing... I think it's I think we always see him that way. We see him proud, we see him stable, we see him honest, forward thinking, his own person. And when he falls off that scale too much to the right or the left, it feels like taking the character backwards, right? Um Dick Grayson grew up in a way that Franklin Richards never will, probably. Uh some people say that's a problem, others think others think that's a character journey. I liked Dixon, Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel's run on Nightwing from issues uh, 1 through 40. He Dixon all but ignored uh, Dick Grayson's Titans years, but that didn't always make him a Batman clone either in the book. He still was his own being, and he wasn't all traumatized by his history with Batman, and he wasn't traumatized that he wasn't Batman. He was his own person, and he was making his own way in a new city, um, and I, I think that's what I enjoy about him. When he is all angsty about wanting to live in the Batman's shadow or wanting to be Batman, I, f- I feel it's kind of false. Uh, as far as trades, maybe read Batman Prodigal, if that still is out there. It's a storyline that followed the Nightfall event, um, and, or Night's End event, which was a, you know, continuation of Nightfall. So before Morrison... Uh, before Morrison's Batman and Robin, and before Dick Grayson became Batman previous in previous years, Prodigal is a story where Dick becomes Batman uh, because ba- uh, Bruce Wayne has come back from having his back broken, and he's not quite ready yet to become uh, take over the mantle again. So Dick accepts the role, and it's a short storyline and it was good it was really good but i think what i like about it is it's a dick grayson at that time that is reluctant to take batman's role um not because he wants to be that character but because he has established himself as his own character 
From there, maybe read Judah's contract, where you'll get the introduction of Nightwing to get an idea of how he moved on. And then I think try the whole Dixon series as a whole, the Dixon-McDaniel run 1 through 40. Try it and, and see what happens. Um, there's also Bat, uh, Nightwing Year One by, um, I think it's Chuck Dixon, Scott Beatty, and Scott McDaniel again. It's from round issues of Nightwing 101 through 106 um, to get a, an idea of his history. Uh, I think those will, will, will help you. Hey, my name is Fred Chow. I am a comic book writer and illustrator. I made the book Johnny Hero, Half Asian All Hero. Um, it's been nominated for four Eisner Comic Industry Awards, as well as included in the Best American Comics 2010. Since then, I have been working on a children's book project called Allison and Her Rainy Day Robot. It's about this young girl, Allison, who's bored on a rainy day, and to help her have fun, she decides to build a robot, a fun bot of sorts. Unfortunately, this robot is a little bit boring. It suggests that they maybe clean a room and make a gazpacho. None of which makes Allison very happy. But don't worry, there is a happy ending. As well as penguins. And a monkey. Anyway, you can check out most of the comic up on robotchow.wordpress.com. Through Kickstarter, however, I am hoping to raise $5,000 in order to create a full-color, 64-page, hardcover children's book out of the project. If you donate, you can get the book itself, as well as original pages, and I'll have plenty of other gifts on the side of this Kickstarter page. I think that's it for now. Take care, take it easy, and I thank you again for anything you might be able to donate. And there are penguins. That's right, we only have one more day for the Fred Chow Kickstarter, so please, if you can, check it out and help him out. Um, I think it would be cool that if he, he would get uh, a few more backers um, as the last uh, uh, day approaches. Um, all right, just a few more comments here, and then we're done with yet another long episode. Stanford Harvey Jr. says, I just wanted to let you know that comic shop owners, workers, are drug dealers. I worked in a local comic shop for 15 years, and I knew how to push the stuff. All it took was one question. So what do you guys think I should be reading? Once I heard that, I knew I could get them hooked. Sad thing is, now that I no longer work at a comic shop, I am the user and fall for all of my old tricks. Thanks again for a great podcast. That's hilarious. Um, yesterday's um, Marvel Review, Marvel Now Review episode got a few comments. Simon McDonald says, regarding Iron Man... Marvel puts Greg Land on books because he can hit a deadline. Maybe the reason he hits those deadlines is because he's doing a lot of swiping. People need to stop buying books with Greg Land art so that Marvel gets the message. I hate to be negative, but that is how I feel about Mr. Land. Regarding the new Thor book, I was not surprised that Thor found it hard to believe that the, these aliens did not have gods. First, Thor is a god, so I can see him approaching this with hubris, that a civilization could not get along without gods. Secondly, all primitive peoples... All primitive peoples develop their own pantheon, pantheon of gods. As we mature as a society, we frequently lose our faith in our gods, but then sometimes we don't. Cool, yeah, totally agree. Uh, ultimately, the I think the point that I really was trying to make got a little bit lost in what I was trying to say. It's not necessarily that I think it's hard to believe, or Thor finds it hard to believe. It's that it felt like... Okay, put it this way. If that was the first Thor comic ever created, great. Then that's something that we... It, you know what it's like? It's like this. It's when... And I read this in a lot of 80s comics. Somebody gets punched. Superman gets punched. And he'll say, I've never been punched so hard in my life. Or... The, and this is a very... This is a John Byrne Marvel thing. When somebody... Or Chris Claremont. When somebody moves really fast, but they're really big. 
I can't believe they move so fast for how big they are, right? It's like these generic outbursts of, um, of, of commentary that you want to go, really? Really? You've never been punched like that, that hard before? Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a writing tool more than anything to, to sort of set up something else, right? So Jason Aaron wrote that for Thor, this idea that he's never come across a civilization that uh, didn't have gods, because having gods as a society is part of his story, but there's been a hell of a lot of Thor comics out there, and along the way he's had to have run in uh, against somebody who didn't have uh, some kind of Thor, uh, some kind of God background. That's that's really where I'm talking. It's more from like a writer's standpoint is where I'm, I meant all that. Uh, Dave S. on that same episode, he writes about the ending of AVX. They seriously screwed the pooch by killing Professor X instead of Cyclops. I mean, come on. They were leading everyone to believe that they would actually kill a Marvel mainstay like Cyclops but they wimped out and killed off a guy that's been killed at least a few times before, and, as I expect, he will yet again come back from the dead. Had Cyclops been killed at the end, that would have made for some major changes and potential storylines. He continues, Uncanny Avengers. I did get this one. I thought it was decent. I may pick up the next few issues to see if it goes anywhere. I love that they are featuring Havok, as he's long been a favorite character of mine. Also, seeing as he's Cyclops' brother... Here's one spot where they'll be missing out a lot of opportunities had they killed Cyclops off as opposed to just having him locked up in a ruby quartz prison. And then he goes on to say, do we really think he won't escape out of that prison somehow? And we don't have to worry <laughs> too much at all because uh, he's already out of that prison at the end of uh, AVX con Consequences. Uh, I, I didn't read it, so I don't know how he actually went out, but he's gone. Some other comments from his email. He says, flip through the new Thor as well. I enjoy Isad Rubik's art, but I kind of feel it's better suited in prestige format miniseries stories. I can't get into it as a monthly paneled book. Again, I only flip through it, so I can't judge too much. Maybe the story is great, and ultimately that's all that matters. In general, still tired of Marvel charging the extra $1 on pretty much all of their books now. I tried one of the free digital comics from AVX and wasn't too into it. Though I don't have a tablet, so maybe it's better on that. So as a consumer, me having to pay extra for a service option that I have no use for is highly frustrating. Marvel puts out 17.4 different varying covers for each title, so why not put out a version of the book that doesn't have the digital copy for the regular $2.99 price? And that is something that DC does. Uh, they'll put out some of their regular books at $2.99, and then if you want the digital, it's $3.99. Also, I'm kind of annoyed that they're introducing so many elements and such from their cinematic world into their comics. I understand it, but I'd much rather keep the two worlds separate. I think I've just been changing or maturing when it comes to my overall comics tastes. I've fallen out of the love for the big two more and more as of late, but these things happen. And I've seen that from other people as well, especially with these relaunches. And, uh, and all good, because there's certainly a lot of other stuff going on, and I know Dave reads, reads uh, other comics outside of the big two that he's really enjoying. Um, so, um, comics don't stop at Marvel and DC, that's for sure. And there's plenty out there to, to read. And we're coming up on the end of the year, so there are going to be hundreds of best-of lists for books that came out this year. And that's always a great way 
to find some new projects, some new writers, some new artists, heck, some new publishers. So as these lists lists come out, uh, you should uh, try to keep try to find them and, and maybe uh, you know check off stuff that sounds interesting to you uh, that uh, will be worth a read later. And then to close out this episode, just a few quick comments here. From Scott, he says, Thanks so much, Peter, for putting out a New Comics Wednesday episode. Every week, I was wondering, are you reading the Death of the Family Batman arc? I really enjoyed Scott Snyder's work and would be interested to hear your take on it. I am not reading it. I am way, 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 way behind on my DC. And now that I'm reading on this Marvel, it's taking up my time. Um, yeah, I meant to go back and do some DC talking for a long time. And I keep promising it on the show and I never get to it. But someday, someday. Brian Nixon says, good to hear you on the airwaves again. I really enjoy the format of the show. Little snippets of geekdom to snack on, though I do listen to a chunk of episodes at a time. And that's awesome. If if you want to wait until the end of the week and listen to all the episodes of that week, you could certainly do that. I mean, hell, the Monday episode was two minutes long. So um, that's a great way to, to absorb the podcast. MJ Starchild from the Nerd Goggles podcast says, posing a question... Do you think indie comics work better as a short, limited series or as a long, ongoing? Good question. There are examples of both that have, uh, you know, certain levels of success. Certainly Walking Dead, Strangers in Paradise, Bone. But you could argue that things like Strangers in Paradise and Bone probably found more success or at least a bigger audience uh, as those things were collected. Certainly like with Cerebus and, and some other long-form um, indie ongoings. Walking Dead, certainly the same way. I mean, the, the monthly series is great, but it really was the trade development of that series that pushed it into its success. And then there are the short limited series that I do enjoy. Um, you do have people who wait for the trade, so that could hinder some of the production of the later issues if uh, some of the earlier issues don't sell. Um, I think with indie series, if they're going to be a short limited series, they should probably have, if it's a five issue series, they should probably have four issues in the can, three or four issues in the can, so that it can come out month to month. Nothing kills a, a comic more than, at least for me, nothing kills a comic more than time, than delays time away from reading it, um, collecting it. Uh, and I'm talking major delays, you know. Um, we talked about missing in action comics. I mean, non-player number one came out. I picked it up because of all the hoopla and all the preliminary work I saw and read it. Thought it was fine. I thought it was good, decent, great artwork. Um, I don't know when two is going to come out. I talked about it uh, last week, you know, that he was in an accident and he's slowly recouping. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'll pick it up when it comes out or maybe I'll just wait for the trade. See, so right there, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> So, I don't know. I don't know if I have a dog in that race. Um, uh, all I know is I think if you are going to do indie work, have as much of that work done as, as possible. Uh, MJ also left a really great iTunes review. She says, anything goes, there is no format. One day I'm listening to an original song and another inspirational speeches. The Daily Rios explores the medium of podcasting in a new and exciting way as a solo cast. Plus, we still get New Comics Wednesdays by a person who loves comics, good or bad. Here, podcasting equals art. MJ, I really appreciate that. I'm trying. I'm trying to be creative whenever I can um, because things have gotten busy. Some of these episodes have been a little more straightforward, but I always have ideas. And then 
Uh, I think it's Carla from Soda Pop Comics. She says, really enjoying the little odd bits of audio you're posting, like Sonic Tweets, which is cool. I appreciate that. And you can go check out sodapopcomicspr.com. I'll put a link uh, on the show notes where Carla and Rosa are doing self-published comics in Puerto Rico, in the Puerto Rico comic scene. And they stand out from uh, a lot of the other com- uh, people creating comics, uh, and even the very small percentage of women creative comics, because they are the only team of women self-publishing locally. Uh, they support and encourage other women to make comics, and the Soda Pop Anthology is a comic zine filled with short comics by other women that found the task of self-publishing daunting. And they get their stories printed and out to local conventions through Soda Pop Comics. So I'll provide a link. I met them at uh, New, um, the Puerto Rico Comic Con, uh, what was that, two years ago, I guess? Was that last year? No, it might have been last year. They come up to the, the States every now and then to go to like MOCA and some other conventions. So check out their work. It's really awesome. And uh, they're doing some great stuff down there. All right. Whew. That's it. That's it for Feedback Friday. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Twitter.com slash Peter J. Rios. Subscribe through iTunes. Leave a comment. Comment on the website. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Have a safe but fun weekend. And go read some comics. Talk to you later.